0: Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined down the line by John Payton, chairman of the board of the Independent and Evening Standard, who has led media companies across the US, Canada and Europe. A pioneer of digital-first publishing, since joining the Indy, John has overseen the title's transformation into a global online powerhouse. A former director of the Guardian Media Group, he has enjoyed an illustrious career as a media executive and investor, founding the market-leading US news brand, Digital First Media. John, thank you for joining me. It's great to be here, Paul. Well, we've got plenty to discuss, but I, I think let's start, if we may, with the independent. I mean, it's gone from, a frankly, a failing print title to a hugely profitable digital brand. You're targeting 100 million pounds in revenues inside four years. I mean, what an incredibly impressive achievement.
1: It's, it's a great team. It starts with a very courageous group of people back in late 2015 who understood that while they had a fantastic title, the independent quality journalism recognized around the world, people on the ground in tough spots, you know, in war zones, et cetera, they understood if they wanted to keep that good journalism alive, they had to change. So they made a very bold step. They decided in March of 2016 to go digital only. So after 30 years of being a prize-winning global-leading newspaper, they dropped the print and went all digital. They also then dropped all of their losses. And from that day until now, The Independent has been growing on the top line. Uh, It's revenue. it, It has been profitable. And it's been growing at a remarkable rate because it's nimble and it's digital. It's doubled its editorial spend. There's now 115 journalists working at The Independent around the world. It's in six languages. While COVID has been an enormous burden on society and hard on companies around the world, particularly media companies, The Independent has actually thrived through all of that because it's online. So it takes a remarkable team with a vision and then, quite frankly, Paul, just the guts to do it, and they did. The architect behind this is a man by the name of Justin Byam Shaw, who was the chairman before me, it's his vision. I've come along in the last couple of years to really speed it along into the into the 100 million that you're talking about. But Zach Leonard, the CEO, and Justin Byamshaw, they're the architects.
0: You call the title the first truly independent digital pure play quality journalism company in the world.
1: Yes, because it's exactly that. I mean, you know, you've got uh, The Guardian, as you know, where I was on the board, which is still print and digital. You've got Pure Play's. Like Vice News and BuzzFeed News, the difference would be that the, that the Independent is solely digital. It's growing on the top line, and it's the only of the three of those. It's the only one that's profitable, and so it is the most successful transformation from a quality title to a digital-only title in in the Western world.
0: And this advertising led, largely free content model, it still works in the online world. Do you have to keep costs down though? Because I mean, you've been talking about all of that investment and all of that overhead. That that sounds expensive.
1: It is expensive. And it's not it's advertising led, but only advertising only makes up about 60% of the independence revenue. Reader revenue, whether it be a small subscription play that we have, or more importantly, how we use data to create e-com plays, affiliate marketing plays, et cetera. That together, along with us selling our digital services to other publishers, that makes up the bulk uh, of the revenue. It's an expensive thing to do. It's an expensive thing to invest in. Uh, It's obviously reaped rewards uh, for the independent and its shareholders. And again, as I was saying earlier, it takes nerve uh, to do this and Mm -hmm. that they have.
0: What's next for the Indy? I mean, India and China uh, expansion seems to be the next big play. I mean, you've, you've done very well in the Middle East.
1: That's right. We're in six languages, including Arabic and Farsi. And we are in uh, Urdu and in Turkish, amongst others. Uh, we've launched Indy uh, Español, which is aimed at the U.S. Spanish-speaking Hispanic market. And we will launch later this year. We already have it in beta. It'll be in English, but it'll be independent India. And we have planning on the books for independent China uh, aimed at the Mandarin market. Uh, Both Indian market and the Chinese market would be diaspora, but people on the
0: ground uh, in in both places, obviously. And how do you tackle critics when uh, some have questioned how the Indy preserves its very famous editorial independence in the Middle East after, uh, obviously, the Saudi Arabian investors were brought in?
1: Yes, that happened, I guess, about three years ago. And at that time, as you know, the Independent put into place an, an editorial protection agreement so that it's free from influence from all its shareholders, not just the investors uh, that came from, that are based in Saudi Arabia. I think the proof has to be in the pudding. Uh, the Independent has some very serious journalists covering the Middle East. We have uh, XBBC David Harding uh, as their editor inside the shop, extremely experienced. Um, I think Any review of our coverage uh, of the Middle East or indeed Saudi Arabia would be seen to be quite critical uh, of Saudi Arabia and a cool analytical eye on all developments in the Middle East.
0: Other print papers are going to follow the, the Indies digital only path, perhaps. Do you think it might be The Guardian next? I think
1: The Guardian is probably best positioned amongst other UK titles to go digital only. It's built a global audience, of course. Um, But has very good journalism. And of course, it has a massive fund behind it with about a billion plus pounds that could afford to invest in it. They just have to be brave enough to take that step.
0: What's Evgeny Lebedev like to work with as a proprietor? I mean, he he comes across as a very colorful character.
1: Evgeny Lebedev is is a great proprietor. He has put his money where his mouth is for more than a decade in both the independent and the evening standard. I think it's well known. He has put, uh, you know, uh, more than 100 million pounds into his, his titles, uh, both saving both from oblivion, I would say. And then, of course, being uh, the investor behind the, the independence of Remarkable Transformation, he's engaged as a proprietor. He understands media very well, um, and he's very good at letting his team, his chief executives, et cetera, get on with running the companies.
0: I mean, as you mentioned earlier, he's shown a real personal commitment to actually investing real cash money in UK journalism.
1: He is. He's probably done more than any single individual in the past decade in the UK.
0: I mean, you're chairman of the Indy and of the Evening Standard. Tell us about the Evening Standard. I mean, it's had a difficult year with lockdown emptying the Capitol Street. I actually feel sorry for... You know, the, the paper, really, because, it, you know, I loved getting that free copy when I was on my commute working in London. It's, it's not the paper's fault or the journalism or, or the management's fault that there's a lockdown and people aren't traveling into London. But I mean, it, that must be a, a huge blow to not only the finances of the paper and the business model, but also to the morale of the team.
1: It's been challenging. There's no doubt about that. I, I would say they've risen to that challenge, Paul. They, you know, they made a commitment. At the Evening Standard, uh, first under George Osborne, then editor, and she even followed up, of course, by Emily Sheffield, the new editor, that they would not stop publishing, no matter what, to, uh, that London needed them more than ever, uh, that, they, that they would make that commitment to be on the streets, you know, the, Monday through Friday, and to beef up their digital presence and activities. They've done all of that. Uh, um, they've never missed a publishing day. It was hard on the bottom line, but they took some tough steps on costs. They reinvested back by Evgeny Lebedev and the shareholders into a much more aggressive digital program. And we're now coming out of that tunnel. We can see light at the end of that tunnel uh, for a much more vibrant paper than we had even a year ago before COVID. But from a staff perspective, it's been hard on morale, working remotely, of course, not seeing your mates, Not getting that work experience, um, both at the independent and the evening standard, their successes this past year, one of thriving and one of survival. It's down to the staff. It's down to them. They're the ones that made it
0: happen. Do you think ultimately the standard will go online only? I mean, it's obviously been a huge success with the Indie. I I read lots of, you know, physical papers online now. I subscribe to the Times. I haven't picked up a physical copy of the Times in in probably a year, but I read it every day. I mean, there's certainly no shame in it. I I get the emails. I I still love the standard. uh, In the evening, the email says West End Final, and I always smile at that as, as if it's harking back to the old days when we used to actually come into London and do work there, whereas now I'm sitting at home. But... um. I mean, it could clearly still be a success if it went digital only, would it not?
1: Of course, absolutely. I think eventually all all newspapers will either be completely online or the vast majority of all of their initiatives, all of their revenue, etc., will be uh, online. There's probably a role for print, uh, you know, as we go forward the next three to five years. What that role will be will be different from what it is today, whether that's magazines, a weekly uh, a very different kind of print product. But the Evening Standard now is fully prepared you know, to meet that digital challenge. That's what's been happening in this past, uh, well, I guess more than a year now of COVID. We've taken the time to not just retrench, but review all of the strategy. And then back by Evgeny, invested in that strategy to make the paper much more digital. So it has that option to go digital only when and if it chooses to.
0: Could you walk our listeners through your career? I mean, you you started out as a journalist, did you not? And somehow you've married that with an entrepreneurial zeal overseeing, reading it here, it says $7 billion worth of financial transactions. I mean, that is incredibly impressive.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. Um, it doesn't feel impressive to me. It just feels like things that we were doing, you know, one thing after another. Um, I started at what they used to call Copy Boy, which in, in Canada, which they call T-Boy. Uh, in uh, in the UK although nobody uses those terms anymore Uh, you know they're not gender specific and copy clerk is probably the right term to use and that's basically the kid that uh, goes around the newsroom and gets coffee for the editors and the reporters and you know picks up actual physical copy in the day and take it back to the print shop Uh, but I always wanted to be a journalist I mean ever since I can remember and so starting in that sort of the very lowest job that they have I I was very lucky to be able to work my way up through uh, the newsroom to a reporter and then a columnist for a while and then an editor. And, and then finally, at one point, it was important to me, I thought, to learn the business side of the business. While being a journalist, I went to uh, a university called Ryerson to get a journalism degree. By the time I was looking at being on the business side uh, of the business, I then took myself off to Harvard to do um, their executive program for non-financial executives, which is essentially learning how money works. And I had an opportunity after becoming an editor-in-chief, then a general manager, and then a publisher, which is the North American term for chief executive, uh, to be able to participate in what was called the leverage buyout. And my partners and I ended up buying the company I started at as a T-boy. And uh, that was a big success for us after when it was sold a number of years later. And after that, I moved to the United States, uh, where my partners and I formed a couple of companies. One of them you referenced at the beginning of the show became known as Digital First Media, which became the second largest newspaper company in the United States with about 10,000 employees and about 1.2 billion in, uh, in revenue. But about 15 years ago, I became fascinated with the opportunities that digital media presented and became much more involved in how digital and data could inform journalism and indeed transform the companies. All pretty boring when you say it that way, but it's been fun.
0: What's been the highlights along the way, and what have been some of the big challenges?
1: Well, I'm still mostly driven by how good the journalism is, and so highlights for sure would include a number of Pulitzer Prizes, I think four that were won on my watch at Digital First Media uh, by our newspapers, mostly the Denver Post, which and, uh, and, our, and our Long Beach paper in Los Angeles. Uh, that was that Those were real high moments for me. As a uh, director and chairman of The Independent, it's been a real highlight to see the growth of The Independent, the launching of Independent Español in India. It gives me a real thrill to be able to take independent quality journalism and then move it into new areas of the world that have not been exposed to it. I would say those are real highlights. Challenges, challenges have been many, but I suppose the single largest challenge that we face, of course, is, is the pandemic and COVID and how that has made businesses work, you know, all the hours in the day just to be able to get through it. And I would say before that, I would have said the 2008 financial crisis. Where you know money just dried up, advertising dried up, lines of credits to operate your businesses dried up. Those were very trying times, and there was a number of years there that were really quite painful.
0: Could you take our listeners through what your jobs involved, with the various roles that you have Like, for example, a typical week in a pie chart. How do you? divvy up your time and, and what are the, the projects that you're involved with? How hands-on are you? I mean, you, you know, I've dealt with chairmen in name only who don't do anything other than sign the, the annual accounts. And then I've dealt with other chairmen who are hands-on, they're in the trenches, the, you know, they're across it, all the detail. What type of chairman are you and what does a typical week look like for you?
1: I would say I act as if I'm an executive chairman. I am involved with the chief executives of all of the places where I am chairman on a daily basis. I'm involved in all strategic decisions and strategic planning. I talk to the chief executives, as they say, every day uh, of the newspapers and uh, and other companies where I'm chair, and of course, to some of their key team members as well. There's not a strategic decision that I'm not involved in and not a strategic review, for example, that I'm not uh, co-leading with the chief executive. So I would say it's very hands-on. A typical day uh, starts at 8 a.m. with my first calls to some of those executives that worked, worked my way through uh, with them. And then there are other meetings uh, in and around the investments because I run an investment company. And I generally try to stop all of those calls by about eight o'clock at night.
0: So back-to-back meetings, back-to-back calls.
1: Uh, yes. Back in the day, those meetings were a lot more pleasant when some of them might have been over lunch, Paul. A lot of, all of them are Zoom now or uh, WhatsApp calls or telephone calls, et cetera.
0: Yes, I, I always used to like the the art of the long lunch as well. And I, I, it's the only thing keeping me going is the thought of some delicious grub and some nice company, uh, you know, in, in the near future. What keeps you up at night then? I mean, you've, you've talked about COVID, you know, you've talked about some of the things that are top of your to-do list. But like, where are you trying to take all these things? Do, do you have a sort of medium and long-term plan for all of these brands? Is it sort of staffing focused? And, and what are the worries? Um, all
1: of the places where I'm chair have long-term plans. Uh, or in the in, in the new position I've take, taken as chairman of Fine and Rare, which is the Fine Wine and Fine Spirits company, which is uh, has a massive digital footprint. Uh, we're putting in a new three-year plan now. So they all have multiple plans. They all have very detailed plans. A three-year plan at the independent is about 180 slides long and uh, with very detailed KPIs, uh, which we stick to. If anything keeps me up at night, it is any further form of restricted trade because of covid and then the economic knock-on effects of that and how that would affect confidence in the marketplace that confidence in turn would affect consumer confidence which in turn would affect advertising and e-com which are sort of the lifebloods of uh, of the organizations where i'm
0: chairman I mean, journalism is under attack as never before you're booking the trend by investing in quality journalism but newsrooms generally are more empty than ever and of course we've just said goodbye to President Trump who was constantly decrying fake news you know millions upon millions of Americans verbally and sometimes physically attacking journalists things you wouldn't even think were possible in a mature Western democracy several years ago do you do you feel optimistic for journalism going forward or do you think it has to adapt or you know you, you wouldn't be blamed if you were a little bit maudlin actually about the state of uh, how little journalism is supported these days i am optimistic
1: about the future of journalism i think the independent is living proof that you can be and as i mentioned they've got quite smaller going from print to digital in order to survive and now they've more than doubled their newsroom and their editorial resources to continue to do that they will over the next 5 years more more than likely more than double that again So, I am confident that the new tools available to us, our ability to adapt to the digital ecosystem, is going to be supporting the quality journalism that we pursue. I'm not particularly overconcerned about the interregnum of the Trump era. It was very difficult for newspapers and very difficult for quality news organizations to combat the the constant bellowing of fake news. But I think what we've seen is that in the end, you know, truth does win out. Accuracy does win out. Uh, It's Trump that's gone, not the news organization's.
0: Is there a secret source to what you do? Is, is there a secret source to uh, the success of the Evening Standard and the Independent? Is there there's something, you know, a lot of management consultants are always trying to reduce to writing and words, something that's either unspoken or a culture or an approach. Is, uh, how cognizant are you of, of that in terms of, and how do you cultivate it?
1: Well, I think there's only sort of two things you can do. One is to create a culture that's courageous to make some change, because change is absolutely necessary. And then you have to marry that to persistence. I mean, nothing works better than persistence. You have to come to work every day, ready to give it your best, and then come back the next day and do it all over again with the absolute realization that it's never enough. And so that's hard. That's very hard to do. But if you can create a culture of change, one of hard work, one that's ready to be persistent, as Zach Leonard has done as the chief executive of The Independent, then you can see that success. Charles Yardley, the new chief executive of the Evening Standard, who's ex of Forbes, and his co-lead, Emily Sheffield, they're bringing that same kind of work ethic, that same kind of cultural change. And that's why we're seeing the turnaround of the Evening Standard.
0: Do you enjoy the, the the portfolio career? I mean, obviously you've got the the chair of the Independent, the Evening Standard, but you're recently appointed by the Home Office in a supervisory role there, and you're very active in the super yacht industry. How do you how do you fit it all in, and how do you spin lots of plates?
1: Oh well, I think I was saying earlier to you that my days start you know officially about eight and they end about eight, and there's sometimes before and after. I found a long time ago, Paul, I've been doing this 43 years, that I'm someone who likes to work long hours. I enjoy being involved in things that I find interesting, and so it works because I'm doing a lot of work. I be work. Sorry, let me redo that. It works, Paul, because I'm willing to put in a lot of hours. I put in a lot of hours because I'm interested in the work itself.
0: The old adage is, isn't it? This, if you want something doing, ask a busy person. I mean. In June, you were appointed by the government as a non-executive director to the Home Office. I'm fascinated by that. Uh, you know, what insights have you been able to bring to that department? It's a, is it a different dynamic? in, you know, it's not for profit. You're serving the people. Is it that the the, the Home Office could do with a, a, you know an entrepreneur, a business person like yourself that you bring in that perspective? Uh, and what, what's what's gone as you planned, and what's raised an eyebrow with you? What's been different to what you thought it would be?
1: Well, first off, I did it because I was asked, and I do think you have to be of service, you know, to society, you know, some involved in some other things as well, we have established, you know, some scholarships for young journalists, uh, particularly young journalists of colour in New York City, where I lit, where I lived for 15 years. I'm a Brit. I was born in Britain. You can't tell from my accent. I was born in Glasgow, the east end of Glasgow. Uh, but my, you know, I have my granddaughter lives there. My daughter lives there, my son-in-law, etc. So I'm committed to doing what I can, if I can. And so when I was approached to be a non-executive director of the Home Office, I think, as you know, there there are NED boards across uh, government and and, in different departments. I was very pleased to try to be able to help. I I mean, the first thing that's very clear uh, when you join one of these boards is just how hard the staff are working. I mean, they work incredible hours the key managers at the home office, um, many, many, many hours. It's not particularly uh, overpaid, say, compared to private industry, but they are dedicated individuals. And the first thing that really happens is you become extremely impressed by their work ethic, by the passion that they bring to the job themselves and their commitment. I mean, they're very committed to the to the country. It's why they work as hard as they do. I've had no eyebrows raised about anything negative there. And I think if I've been helpful at all, and it would be really for them to judge, not me, I would say I've been helpful in having been involved in a number of corporate experiences, being able to advise on certain situations, operationally that is, you know, how a department might want to change how it works or a department might want to look at different systems, being able to use that experience to ask some probing questions that hopefully Help the managers there make better decisions.
0: How would you describe your relationship with Google and Facebook? Are they are they frenemies? Are they trying to take all your advertising revenue while you are paying the journalists to actually write the content? You know, do you see the Independence Facebook page as a sort of signpost to, to get traffic to your website, or is it that sometimes you're populating that page with content and it's Facebook that's taking all the money through advertising? How how does it work?
1: Well, I have a very practical approach to. Google and Facebook and the large social media platforms, they're here to stay. They're very good at what they do. They are very large and they do dominate many revenue categories. I think Zach Leonard, CEO of the Independent, says it's best when he says it's not a fight, it's judo. And so in judo, you use your opponent's weight against them. And we have ended up striking some very good arrangements with Google and Facebook in particular, to drive both independent audience and independent traffic. So we get to do the journalism we want to do. We get to harness those platforms for greater audience. And then obviously that horrible word monetization, be able to make money, uh, you know, through advertising and through e-com on those audiences. So I don't see them as a frenemy. I don't see them as an enemy. I see it as a practical relationship between two businesses that both have strengths and they're both using each other to mutual benefit.
0: How have you evolved as a leader over the many decades that you've been doing this? We're all on a, a learning curve and a journey. I, I'm not the same leader as I was, you know, 20 years ago. I've learned what, you know, what works for me and what doesn't. How have you evolved as a leader and what qualities do you admire in people that you're, that you're hiring? If, if, if you were interviewing for a chief executive of a, of, of a company that you were chairman of, what would you be looking for?
1: I'd be looking for determination someone who without ego is determined to do the right thing and determined to do everything it takes to make the company a success for the employees, shareholders, and the customers. And I would say in that order, if you get that order right, then you'll have a good business. And the second thing I would be looking for is a level of humility, because I think that means that that particular leader is open to hearing new ideas, certainly open to being challenged successfully without turning that into some kind of contest of wills, which is usually destructive uh, to a company. And the third thing I'd be looking for is that person's ability to listen. It's um, very easy to tell when you're a chief executive. You know, everybody who works, there works for you. And so it's easy to tell people what to do. It's very difficult to listen carefully, advise them, you know, and then sort of set them on their path with everybody in agreement it's the right thing to do. Of course, not making any mistake that you are in charge. As for myself, I still struggle with the listening. I still struggle with the humility, but I think I've evolved enough to know that I'm struggling with it. And that's a bit of a win for me compared to where I was say 15 years ago.
0: What's next for you in the medium to long-term? Do you do you have a kind of career plan and, and how's it going?
1: I don't think I've ever planned my career. I've been very, very lucky to do some really wonderful things with wonderful people. I've been very fortunate financially because many of those things were success, and so I don't have worries on that kind of front. As I look forward, what I'm most looking forward to is where I, the places where I'm chairman now: Independent Evening Standard, uh, Boone International Media, uh, and and Fine and Rare. I'm looking forward to growing all of those titles globally and making them into something much stronger, much bigger, with a much brighter future so that the employees there can reap the benefits of that.
0: John, that was a hugely interesting conversation. Thank you ever so much for your time. Well, thank you, Paul. It was a real pleasure speaking with you today. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.